Welcome back to a very special pre-inauguration episode of For Fintech Sake. With me, your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Today, we have two of my favorite regtech thinkers who are quickly becoming regulars on the show, Joanne Barefoot and David Eric, the co-founders of AIR, the Alliance for Innovative Regulation. AIR published a very important document in 2020, the RegTech Manifesto. We not only discuss what it is, but why they wrote it, why it's even more important right now with everything going on in the world to dig into these subjects than it ever really has been before. We recorded this after the attacks on the Capitol, but before the inauguration, and I've been kind of sprinting to get this out before the inauguration because I think we cover a number of things that are really important to discuss as we lead up to the shift of power. Number one, I learned a lot, which I always do talking to these two. But number two, I left with a sense of hope. Hope about democracy, hope about the future of regulation, hope about the direction that the United States is going in general and the people that we have thinking about the future for it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Joanne and David. Let's let's go before the manifesto and let's go to maybe I think listeners know who both of you are because I've had both of you on before, but maybe just a quick introduction again of you, Joanne, and of you, David. And specifically, if I could ask one question in addition to the quick introduction is what do you think is the importance of government in our financial system and how much should our, you know, fintech nerd friends be paying attention and caring right now? Because it seems like a lot. Well, thank you, Zach, for having us back on the show. It's always fantastic to be with you. And uh, we're here at a momentous time uh, recording this the week before the U.S. inauguration. I know we're going to talk a bit about that. My background is I am CEO and uh, co-founder with David of the Alliance for Innovative Regulation, AIR. And before that, I have had decades of work in both the public and private sectors, I've been a bank regulator, uh, deputy controller of the currency in the United States. I have uh, been a consultant uh, at places like KPMG and Tree Liant. I've started my own firms a few times. I worked for the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, and I spent two years at Harvard as a senior fellow in recent years researching and writing about innovation in finance and how to regulate it and develop innovation in the regulatory arena as well, which is what AIR works on. And I have a podcast show, Barefoot Innovation, which I hope everyone will listen to. Highly recommended. I've learned, I I knew nothing about regulation before I started listening to your podcast. I remember you telling me when I first met you that you had used that as sort of a primer to get up to speed. So that was great. Yeah, (laughs) and I continue to learn through you. So I appreciate that. I appreciate it a lot. Uh, David, who, who are you? Well, Zach, it's great to be back on the show. Thanks for um, having us back again. Um, My background is 20 years uh, in the financial services field. I was a general manager at American Express and prepaid and the head of credit card strategy at JPMorgan Chase. Um, uh, I've done stints uh, in nonprofit work with financial inclusion. I was the architect of the Bank on National Account Standards, which is a set of standards that help the uh, creation of uh, bank accounts that don't have overdraft fees, uh, and also a co-founder of Pedal, which is a uh, fintech credit card that is pioneering the use of cash flow underwriting 
to help provide safe and affordable credit to folks that don't have a credit history, whether they're credit invisible or thin file. Uh, one of the highlights of my professional career has been able to uh, link up with Joanne and to uh, co-found with her the Alliance for Innovative Regulation. Uh, the, uh, our objective is to really help transform and, and modernize the regulatory system to uh, really a digital native design. And uh, what we like to say is that um, uh, financial regulatory innovation is no longer an oxymoron, <laughs> right? Regulation innovation uh, it can happen and is happening, you know, even as we speak. Uh, and so um, Joanne and I have really dedicated ourselves to helping catalyze that effort. Um, but we're both really encouraged and really optimistic because uh, we see it with regulators in the U.S. and around the world uh, that um, they are really embracing technology in an entirely new way and uh, are really thinking through what it means to digitize and leverage the kind of uh, fintech um, technologies that we're seeing in the private sector, but for the benefits of regulation, both to lower costs of regulation and improve its, its efficiency and its effectiveness. We will talk about the manifesto. That was kind of, you know, the goal of all this. I think we've tried to have this conversation a few times and Joanne gets called to Capitol Hill occasionally. The world is ending occasionally. Things, things happen, uh, especially when you live in DC. So let's actually start there. Uh, now that kind of listeners have a sense for the two of you and I'll link to our previous episodes and link to Joanne's podcast and air and everything else that you two do with the, the balls that you juggle and that value that you add in the world. But let's start with that government piece. How important is it for this world of the fintech arati, the fintech nerds, this, you know, this little, this little bubble that we kind of live in where we all know each other and it's a little bit of a gossip, you know, situation. Um, how important is it that we pay attention to politics right now? How important is it that we care about government and not only vote, but take part in our electoral system at this point? Uh, I'll, I'll start. So, and I'm going to answer this on two levels, Zach. Uh, on the sort of tactical level, the fintech world needs to pay tremendous attention to the policy environment that we're in right now because we have new leaders coming into Washington in both the administration and the new Congress. And I think we're going to find a, a, a rising level of concern or skepticism about the benefits of fintech. And a lot of us sort of take those benefits for granted. Uh, at AIR, our mission is grounded in fair finance. We're trying to make the financial system more fair and more inclusive and also more um, free of bad things like money laundering and financial crime. And, um, and we think of these technologies as driving toward those goals. And I think that, that the environment in Washington is going to have a, a large cadre of people who need that to be proven to them. They see theoretical benefits, but they also see risks. People are concerned about privacy. People are concerned about black box algorithms uh, that might introduce bias uh, in, into things like credit decisioning. 
Um, people are worried about cybersecurity. People are worried about whether discrimination could get worse instead of better if the if the robots are deciding everything. Um, but we've really been encouraging people to really focus. The center of gravity in, in the world that we work in is shifting toward Washington in a way that it has not in recent years, and that these stories need to be told. In fact, I'll use, I'll use your show to put out a pitch. We're looking for research on impacts of fintech on consumers and small businesses. And if people have papers they want to send our way, we would love to be uh, hearing about it or connecting with people who are doing research. More broadly to your question, though, as I said, I've spent my career in both the public and private sectors, and I'm living now in Washington, D.C., and we do have the inauguration scheduled for next Wednesday. And as we're recording this, uh, President Trump was impeached for the second time yesterday. And um, I mean, I'm hunkered down, ready for anything. I used to work at in the Senate. I took the things that happened um, so much to heart as did all the people around me. And I think it is time for thinking deeply about the role of the essential role of government in our lives and specifically in our financial lives. My belief is that we need private sector innovation, private sector competition to drive toward the better days in the financial world. Uh, But we have to have smart government regulation to set the guardrails, to be nudging in the right directions. And if you lose that, uh, so much is at risk. I think one of the things I feel we've been learning from the crises of the start of 2021 is the fragility of some of the things we take for granted that just work because people trust each other or people um, have faith in institutions and in process and um, the courts and all of it. And now uh, we're so deeply divided. Um, I'm not unique, I know, in being very concerned about the polarization of the the, uh, population and um, I think we need to be figuring out how do we build trust? How do we work together? How do we build bridges to work toward a better, in our sector, a better, more fair financial system, which we can have massively better uh, financial services if we leverage the technology game changers that are underway in a really smart manner. Yeah, I'm, for the record, just glad you're okay. I emailed you right when I saw everything. I was on a call for work when it all started unfolding. And I was just like, do I keep going with the call? I don't know what to do with my hands. And like 20 minutes after that, I was like, holy shit, I need to check on Joanne. I need to check on all my friends in DC. And I'm really glad that you weren't at the Capitol for that time. And like listening, uh, number one, just listening to you give that description of life as it stands like it gives me the it gives me goosebumps it gives me chills to just think about what we have taken for granted and and the fear that has kind of crept into me since realizing that you're right we can't take a lot of this for granted and it takes me to you david sitting in a different seat and you know further away but in a even busier city and especially i mean joanne's point about you know 
some folks in DC maybe being skeptical of some of these new things that are out in the world in the fintech space, like how could anyone be skeptical of cash flow underwriting? Isn't that the best version of, you know, how the world works? Like how, how could it get better than that? And why would anyone be skeptical of that? And anyways, I'm going to get up on my soapbox if I'm not careful here, but it's your, it's your turn to pontificate on government, David. Well, it is, it is funny around the question of cash flow underwriting. I mean, you know, like that's, that's what the nature of underwriting has always been, you know, since the time of the Romans. Right. So it's hard to imagine that we've kind of lost uh, focus on that. And, and really it's kind of interesting, right? Because, uh, it, it's a story about transitions, right? It was the, the technology innovations in the 1970s and 80s that allowed us to actually use proxies for cash flow underwriting that were more efficient, more effective, effective and efficient at that time. Right. The creation of credit bureaus and the creation of individual credit files were huge yeah. uh, technology advances at that time. But the reality is, is that our technology has gotten so much better that we can now automate uh, the information that people have in their own credit, their own their own personal, uh, you know, credit digital record. And that's a a huge, huge step forward. And that's what we're seeing everywhere, Uh, you know, uh, including, you know, the impact that social media has had on our current, you know, kind of political and social structures. You know, and this isn't the first time that we've seen uh, significant um, tectonic social and political shifts. You know, think about the second half of the 19th century with the rise of the robber barons. You know, we had uh, an entirely new uh, uh, economic norm, which was the rise of industrialization that transformed this country for better and in some ways for worse, right? And it took the nation a good 30 or 40 years to catch up to that and figure out what to do about it from a policy and a governmental perspective. Uh, and we decided as a, as a nation that competition was good and monopolies were bad. And we took steps to fix that. And um, you know, on the optimistic side of this, we're facing a new problem, which is the impact that technology has had on our social and economic structures. Um, but the optimistic look is to is to really look at that and say, uh, this is inevitable. This is the path forward. And now what we have to do is uh, is come in and help fix it. And that really is the role of government. That really is the role of regulation, right? So, you yeah. know, if you think about fair finance, to build on what Joanne was saying, you know, our government exists in the financial realm uh, to provide and ensure the safety and soundness of the system. You know, when you look at the history of the the the, the financial upsets of the end of the 19th century, culminating with the the Great Depression, there were structural things that we couldn't put in place that would lower the risk of uh, financial collapse. Uh, And we saw that in full play this year, you know, uh, with the very, uh, you know, kind of effective and and, um, strategic interventions that both Treasury and the Fed uh, put in place very early on in March when we started to face the financial crisis associated with COVID. Uh, And that was in many ways based on the learnings that we had from our last financial crisis. So things in this financial crisis weren't nearly as bad as they could have been because of the role of government, because of the uh, processes that we have in place for regulation. 
right? Uh, yeah. And then you can think about that from the perspective of the consumer. You know, fair finance exists to protect consumers from harm, to, uh, you, know, in, it, it, you know, really radically improve financial inclusion and ensure that all people have access to the benefits of our financial system and not just uh, the, the wealthiest, you know, uh, to stop financial crime. When you think about how financial crime, all of the most heinous crimes in the world, human trafficking, child mm -hmm. sexual abuse materials, the um, uh, trafficking of, of rare animals, you know, armaments, drug trafficking, all of this is enabled by the ability of the financial system to uh, essentially fence, provide a fence for these products, right? If there was no financial gain to be made from human trafficking, in, in most cases, it would stop. Mm -hmm. And the financial, the financial system is a way to stop that. We can actually interrupt that through uh, our regulatory processes. And so yeah. that's what that's what we're look, working for. And and at AIR, we recognize that the power of technology to actually affect and implement those changes uh, and to increase our ability to protect consumers and stop financial crime and improve financial inclusion. This is extraordinary. We're at a we're at a critical turning point. Uh, we're at a fork in the road and we have yeah. uh, a choice to make. I mean, you, you kind of started the preamble with the seventies, right? And that's technology aside. It was in that period that women got access to credit without a cosigner, right? I mean, we're, it feels very similar in a lot of ways in terms of this. I'm sure that there were, you know, a set of people in that time frame that I, I wasn't born yet. So I don't know, but I'm going to assume as there always are some portion of Americans that are very upset about things like equality or things that are, you know, 20 years later, just assumed as the correct thing for humans to do. But it seems like there's some overlap there. Right. And speaking of financial crisis, it it feels like maybe we're not addressing some pieces of what could be an even bigger crisis in the commercial real estate realm or things along those lines in terms of just what's happening out in the world right now. It's not even really a question there. Just it's good to hear from you too in terms of the hope, you know, I mean, even sitting in DC, sitting in New York, there's, there's hope and we're, we've gone through a dark, dark time, you know, uh, your opinion on the current president aside, which I think we all have, uh, I think we all can mostly agree on an opinion over the last week or two. Um, but your opinion over the last four years aside, you know, the, the future, for finance is bright, right? And, and this, this idea of fairness weirdly is a new conversation, right? And you two are kind of leading the charge on this. And when you, and we'll get to the manifesto kind of out of this, because I think the manifesto is sprung up through the idea of just like shaking the industry and saying, let's make this fair people, please. But what does, what does financial fairness mean to Air, what does it mean to the two of you? It's almost such an obvious question that I feel dumb asking it, but there's probably specific answers that the two of you have that are probably not what people just assume. If you think about the where we are now and, and where we've been in recent times, the financial regulatory world has has been driven by certain missions one of which, as David said, is to keep the system safe and sound so the economy can grow and people can thrive. 
And then there's also consumer protection and there is a drive for financial inclusion and some of the mandate. And then as we've been saying, there's also a, a mandate to police financial crime in the system. I am old enough to have been in the workforce before the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And not only were there people who thought it was a bad idea, but I had a boss at a federal agency, I won't name it, who was opposed to, um, actually my agency looked at voluntarily adopting regulations to prohibit credit discrimination against women prior to ECOA being passed and he voted against it. Yeah, he said women wow. co-signer uh, as their husband or uh, father to co-sign because they might get pregnant and they wouldn't pay the loan back and so on. Oh my God. Don't give me. All right. Well, Anyways, we will, I will allow you to continue speaking, but for the record, anyone that has paid attention for the last week, I think that argument is out of the window in terms of the ability for men and like, well, we can't let a woman get in office because hormones, like, did you see yeah. the guy on stage last week? Anyways, continue, <laughs> Joanne. I'm sorry. I cut you off, but um, there's fume coming out of my ears as I imagine there was in yours in the seventies, or maybe you're more rational and balanced than I am. I get angry. I have fume coming out of my ears, but you know, it we do need to remind ourselves that we have made progress on something yeah. and yeah. racial discrimination as well. We've made considerable progress on through these years. But when I look back over the span of those decades, because I was on the ground floor of a lot of the consumer protection law and regulation in the financial area. And when I look back on it, I say to myself, we haven't done that well with it. You know, safety and soundness usually has been pretty good with occasional spectacular failures uh, like the Great Recession. Um, the consumer financial protection and inclusion efforts are mixed at best. People are not protected. There's predatory activity. There's people making terrible choices that they don't understand. We've been trying to protect them through disclosures for all yeah. the and we know people don't re even read disclosures, um, not to mention really take them to heart. It's a, it's a failed strategy, really. And then on the money laundering and financial crime, we have complete failure. You and I have talked about this before, Zach, the UN figures are that we have more than a 99% failure rate in catching financial crime today, despite spending tens of billions of dollars trying every year uh, globally by the by the financial system. So and so it, I like to say I don't blame anybody for these things. I think regulators have been doing the best they can for a long time. But what we have now, because of the new the advent of digital technology, as David said, we're at a fork in the road and there's an opportunity to use different tools different information, different analytics, more information, faster information to be able to really get on top of these problems and transform how we do regulation. And in the, in the course of doing that, actually to drive the cost down at the same time that we drive the results up. And this can bring fair finance. We, you know, we know that so many people care about consumers and financial consumers and don't care about the regulatory plumbing. That just sounds boring. But the fact is we need to bring great technology and great data into this work in the financial industry, which is digitizing 
and in the financial regulatory arena and figure out how to do better and there's and figure out also how to avoid the downside risk because as i said earlier there's plenty of that as well covid for all the horrible things it has done it has also generated real innovation real adoption of better technologies all across the economy all across our how we live really and certainly in this sector we're coming out of it uh let's hope uh yeah. in the coming knock on wood yeah on wood um not ending up back where we were at the start but we're in a whole new place on technology adoption uh readiness to try new things with technology and we need to really build on that to make a truly fair financial system it's not just fintech companies we're talking about it's bringing technology through at every step of the financial uh, services landscape faster payments cheaper moving moving of money better underwriting as we were talking about before better tools for budgeting and for bill paying making it easy instead of hard to run your financial life better easy tools for planning ahead and saving and investing what is cryptocurrency and central bank digital currency going to do uh, to the possibilities of making these systems work for everyone in the world in new kinds of ways um, so that's what we think of as as fair finance framed as a positive uh, thing to drive toward as opposed to a sort of negative, let's um, just protect consumers from problems by um, by giving them some legal legalese to read and thinking yeah. so they're, they're going to be okay. Oh, I respect, I, I appreciate the abundance mindset in a uh, pretty scarce couple weeks. Yeah. So yeah, I, I appreciate the perspective. David, I'm guessing you have uh, some additional thoughts. Um, you know, just coming back to this idea of the fork in the road, right? I mean, yeah. you know, given what's happened and uh, our visibility on the impact of, of technology and social media, both on our social interactions and our political uh, interactions, uh, uh, you know, I think we're going to see some pretty strong um, uh, policy responses to that. You know, we've been, you know, hearing about the coming tech clash. I think that the events on Capitol Hill will only precipitate that uh, more. We're going to be seeing, um, uh, you know, antitrust activity. We're going to be seeing, you know, more activity in terms of uh, what is and isn't appropriate behavior, uh, you know, in a social forum. I mean, you know, when you think about being able to, you know, walk into a movie theater and, sh and yell fire, you know, that's a matter of settled law, right? Like we have the freedom of speech and we also have a responsibility that yeah. comes with the freedom of speech. You know, it is not responsible use of freedom of speech to walk into a movie theater and yell fire. You know, people get hurt. And that's what yep. we've seen on Capitol Hill. The challenge is, is that uh, what we don't want to do is have a knee jerk response to this. Right. We do need to respond to this. We do need to create a new framework around how do we think about the appropriate guardrails for social media and for the use of technology in our modern world. Uh, this is absolutely necessary. But um, uh, what we want to make sure is that we take a nuanced view. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't want to stop the benefits of technology while regulating the downsides and the risks of technology. 
And that's yeah. really what Joanne was trying was getting at earlier is that there's a huge opportunity for us in the financial regulatory space to uh, to do this. Right. We 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 really have um, a series of choices to make and we should make them with a very informed and nuanced view and not with a reactionary perspective. I mean, the, the word fairness to me, you know, the etymology is somehow in my head leads me back to inclusion, yeah. you know, and. I think about where I grew up in Kansas city. I grew up on, you know, the, the rougher side of the tracks. Kansas city has a pretty clear racial dividing line. And I grew up on the non white side as a white boy. And I grew up next to a lot of check cashing places, right? Basically kind of grew up in the hood next to a lot of payday lending, um, saw that side of the world, right? So for me, the idea of a lot of what we've seen of storming the Capitol and a lot of the, the beliefs that folks have developed um, about what's reality and what isn't, it, it all comes back to this divide, right? It comes back to whether they're right or wrong, which is not worth getting into here. Um, they feel left out. They feel like they're not included and like the system isn't fair. Right. So whichever side of the track you're on, or if you're in, you know, a rural area or whatever it is, it seems like it all comes back to fairness, which all comes back to technology, which all comes back to policy. And I kind of go in this circle where I'm like, well, which one comes first? And it seems like policy comes first and technology comes second because you have to paint inside the lines, right? I think they are completely intertwined. Uh, yeah. Especially because the world is changing so fast. You, you've been saying we're going to talk about our RegTech manifesto, uh, with our white paper that we put out uh, last year and are still seeking public comments on. We've been getting comments from all over the world. The, a central argument in it is that we need to do things differently because technology is now changing at an exponential rate. Mm -hmm. And that and the COVID pandemic has been giving us a harsh lesson in exponential change that it looks gradual for a long time as the pace of change is doubling and doubling and doubling again. But but the actual shape of it gives us that dog leg shaped curve that we've been mm -hmm. seeing COVID spreading. This is this is the curve that we're dealing with with technology in, in every sphere. And in our sphere, the risk is that you that the businesses and also the regulators get caught under that curve at the moment where it's spiking vertically. And because of that, you're going to have to have completely different ways of keeping the regulators up with the technology and the technology up with the regulatory frameworks. And they're just going to have to be hand in hand. And we have to get good at that. And we're terrible at it now. Again, it's not anybody's fault. I always say the regulators have the hardest job. And I like to point out that my son became a bank examiner. And, you know, I love regulators, but um, uh, but I do have the hardest job not to cut you off. But I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think having gotten to know you, having gotten to know your son, having, you know, gotten to know a lot of regulators through this time and just having, you know, finally gotten over my fear of regulators and said hello to one or two of them when I was back at MBKC and, you know, going through a normal regulatory cycle, like the, these people are human and they're functioning inside of a system and that system dictates certain things. And 
if you're trying to build a house and you don't have a hammer, how do you put the wood together? You know, it's like you need the tools and you need the ability to do the job. And anyways, I, I get up on my soapbox <laughs> about this too, but I totally agree. And it was the, the system they're working in was designed to be prudent, cautious, careful, risk averse, not to make any mistakes. They don't have the yeah. option to move fast and break things. They, they right. are going to have to learn to move fast and get it all right. I have just so much admiration for the leaders who are doing this and um, sympathy for the difficulty of it. But they're just going to have, I mean, if you think about a typical cycle from a law to through a regulation. In the United States, we just passed the new defense law that includes massive changes to the Bank Secrecy Act, biggest changes since 9-11. And, um, you know, we've had however long, a year, two years of development of the law. Now we're going to have a few years of developing the regulations. And a lot of these areas, you start working on a regulation today and put it through all of its stages by the time you come out with it, it's going to be obsolete, you know? So how are we going to figure out how to be more iterative? Um, that's a tremendous piece of what we work on at AIR. And Isaac, you had started this part of the conversation saying, you know, is it policy first, technology second? Um, you know, Joanne's response is, is that it's intertwined. What we like to say is that, um, you know, uh, you need to, to, to solve these problems you need to actually look at the technology divorced from the policy, mm. right? The policy was put in place without the knowledge of what the current technology is, right? It was put in place before this technology existed. It doesn't contemplate the technology, right? And so, so you actually have to look at what's possible from the technology without the policy lens, because the policy lens immediately limits your possibilities, right? After you identify the ways in which technology can help us, then you start to put that through the policy lens. And it helps you understand, first of all, you know, are there ways in which the technology can adapt to the policy, the current policy objectives? Or are there ways in which the current policy objectives need to be revised because of the new technologies that are being presented? So let's, let's go to the, let's go to the manifesto. Let's go to that. Um, we can, we can go through this fairness thing all day, all night. And I think we still will by going to the manifesto. So let's go there. What, what inspired it? It seems like, honestly, it's, I'm almost glad that this conversation has kind of gotten delayed as much as it has, because there's a lot to talk about right now. Uh, that's in that there manifesto that we're going through as a, as a community here. Um, but what did inspire it? Because it's, you know, it, it was not a light lift. It's what, 140 pages. It's, it's significant. About 110. Uh, 110. Sorry. I was, I was being way, I was way overstating. <laughs> <laughs> Don't scare our readers. <laughs> <laughs> but, and that's, and that's really my goal here, right? Is this is a long, this is a long and important document that's the, the constitution's one page. It's pretty straightforward, right? The, what we're talking about here is many pages and has a lot of nuance, but is some of the most important things about the future of our financial system. Yeah. Right. And if we don't pay attention to it and we don't think about it, and if we just keep building, you know, crypto, this and crypto that without taking into account how that's actually going to function inside of our government or inside of our regulatory system, which, probably I intertwine too much. Um, and probably it's worth defining the two separately. What inspired the manifesto? Cause I'm just up on my soapbox again. So let's start there. We're going to, I'm going to rein in my, uh, my scroll chasing. 
<laughs> so we uh, were working on the all the themes that are in this manifesto paper for a long time. But the idea of doing the paper, I think, is a testament to the need for structuring your life so that you can sometimes take a breath and think bigger. Speaking of chasing squirrels, you know, we're all just completely buried under work uh, everywhere. I've never worked harder in my life uh, than I am now. But I have had a before the COVID, I had a practice of a weekly breakfast with Matt Van Buskirk, whom you know well, and Mm -hmm. does many things with air, including being an advisor to us. And um, he is one of my best thought partners in the world and has been for years. And we were talking about what air should be doing. And he said, you guys should write a RegTech manifesto. And it was like a light bulb went on. And then we started to think about that and write about it. It really took us about 18 months to develop it, partly because we were busy, but also because we were talking to everyone. We had a lot of um, brainstorming sessions with different kinds of groups. We produced a draft probably a year before the actual paper came out and started getting input into that. And what the paper does is it makes the argument for why we need to digitize the financial regulatory system, as David said, to make it digitally native. And then how to, what that would look like, what the attributes of that would be, and what principles should guide the design of it. And then the big, uh, the problems that you would have to solve to go at it, which are enormous. We are a lot of things, but we're not naive. We understand how hard it is to transform the financial regulatory system globally, even though that's what we've set out to do. And then the paper also has a lot of material on practical strategies, a roadmap for how to get there from here, which has to involve starting small and doing things that are concrete in the beginning, but but knowing what the big vision is that you're working toward. We think that the process of doing this will take years, but that it's urgent to be working on it. And we're seeing, as David said, we're seeing um, regulators working on it. Everywhere. So we've put it out as a request for comments. We said we took inspiration from Sir Tim Berners-Lee starting to invent the World Wide Web by putting out a request for comments and forming a little working group. And uh, look what we ended up with there. Pros and cons on that. I know he was in the New York Times this week uh, talking about how to reform the the whirlwind that got loosed on the world by some of that. But um, Uh, But that's what we're doing. We're trying to engage dialogue from people all over the world. And we were very humble. We called it a manifesto intentionally to be provocative, to make it not look like it's just another white paper Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, and to get people to pay attention to it. And um, and we, as I say, we're humble in saying we know we don't have this figured out. You know, we've got a lot of starter ideas and we need to engage a big growing community of people and how to build it. And people are really responding. Well, I mean, it's, it is humility, right? You can't, you can't approach these things without humility, but you also can't approach them without ambition. I think one of my favorite quotes from the manifesto is as technology, 
Of course, as I start to read, I can no longer speak. As technology transforms finance, regulation could become the single most important factor in how much it will produce good versus ill. And that incredibly obvious statement hit me like a ton of bricks. (laughs) It's so true, yet something that I think a lot of people aren't thinking about. Yeah. How, how many folks, I mean, it's, it seems like this is, you know, you don't go into a corner and kind of write this thing and come out the other end. How many people were involved in writing this thing? I mean, I know the two of you were working hard on it. I'm sure people like Matt had input shout out to hummingbird, by the way. Um, but how, how many, like, were, did you have to do interviews? I'm guessing, I mean, Joanne, you were all over the world as you were writing a lot of this. So I'm guessing, you know, this is not just regulators in the US you talk to or technologists in the US, but Singapore, Hong Kong, I mean, you're, this is the most you've been in DC probably in your whole life, right? That's for sure. Yeah, I've been yeah. grounded. Uh, yeah. yeah, David, what do you think? I know we had one round table with about 60 people in it where we had a discussion and a lot of them gave us individual comments. I mean, if I had to, if I just put a stake in the ground, uh, Zach, I would say over 200 people. Wow touch this process. Yeah. And that includes people from across the ecosystem, uh, regulate current regulators, former regulators, um, uh, academics, uh, innovate, you know, technologists, uh, fintech innovators, uh, leaders at existing, uh, traditional financial institutions really, you know, just across the full ecosystem. Lawyers, uh, lots of risk and compliance people, consumer advocates, um, yeah, as you say, in many countries and, and many types of um, of uh, of economies as well, we we it it is somewhat U.S. centric, but the vision is completely global, and we are really convinced that to really make the progress we need to make, we need to have a, an integrated conversation between the emerging markets, many of which are leapfrogging two digitally native strategies because they're not encumbered by as much of the old strategy and because they have digital first uh, financial systems to a greater degree, just because they've been more mobile first longer. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a, it's a very integrated thing. And you're right. It is ambitious, (laughs) Uh, but it's been exciting to us how many people have just, I mean, we're, we get feedback from people. There's you can comment on our website at regulationinnovation.org. And we do have a nice handful of public comments there, but um, but we just hear from people all the time who we had no idea, you know, how they even got it. It's just been traveling around the world hand to hand with people saying, look at this. And uh, then we're doing a series of uh, webinars uh, and roundtables that take deeper dives into the, the more uh, meaty issues that it raises, especially the, a lot of the technology design issues are, they just need tremendous thinking. Who do you want comment from? Is it just kind of everybody? Should my mom be commenting? Or is there a specific, you know, group of folks that you're kind of hoping reads this, grabs onto it and really dives in? Uh, David, you might have different thoughts on that. The first thing that leaps to my mind when you say that is we want to get tech people interested in these regulatory problems. And Zach, you may have heard me tell this story before, because I know, you know, I I put out a series of papers from my Harvard 
uh, senior fellowship. And at the end of that fellowship, I convened a global reg tech conference at Harvard. People came from all over the world. And uh, I said to the people in the room, how many of you have written parts of a law or regulation? And a lot of hands went up, including mine. And then I said, how many of you can write computer code? A lot of hands went up. And I said, how many of you can do both? There was one guy in the room, great kid, ID, had that crossover skill. And, you know, we, in the regulatory side of this work, people assume, they know we've got problems making regulation efficient and effective. And they think you can't really solve that beyond other than at the margin. It's just baked in. And we got a whole tech world that could solve it for sure. They've got the answer, but they don't know about the problem or they think it's a boring problem. And we like to say, these are not boring problems. This is fair finance. This is fairness. This is economic opportunity for you know, a woman in Africa who's hoping to have a fair way to be paid for her vegetables uh, rather than have some uh, predatory uh, itinerant uh, uh, middleman coming through and mm-hmm. deceiving her on how much they're worth. You know, I mean, there's just so much opportunity for people if we get these problems right. And with all due respect to the people in the space already, it's mostly a green field. For, new, for tech. There's hardly any great technology. If there's any great technology in the space, uh, you know, it's got there within the last few years. And um, so, you know, we do have people say to us, I, rather than going to Silicon Valley and tweaking a shopping algorithm to get somebody to buy a little more, uh, why don't I go and try to solve human trafficking by figuring out how FinCEN can catch the money uh, that's being made on it. You know, it's it's really interesting work. So I think the tech people are top of my mind. But in the in the industry, a, a very important audience are the compliance and risk people who tend to be the gatekeepers who do keep some of the innovation out because they're afraid their regulator will disapprove of it. Yeah, I, I would reinforce what Joanne just said, that the 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 benefit here is interoperability, right? And the fact that we can use technology to create an interoperable system that can actually bring together the diverse stakeholders in the ecosystem, right? We need interoperability so that um, agencies can share information and insights with one another, right? So that uh, the burden of reporting isn't to multiple agencies, right? There's no reason why covered institutions have to report to, you know, four federal agencies in 50 states. In this era of technology, that can be completely automated and centralized, right? Um, uh, So you're talking about breaking the barriers down between diverse stakeholders, and you're talking about uh, different agencies. You're talking about in the U.S., different jurisdictions between the federal government and the state government. Um, with uh, anti-money laundering, you're certainly talking cross-jurisdictional uh, internationally between different nations uh, and the banking systems across different nations. And then you're also talking about the relationship that regulators have with uh, covered institutions, with private industry. You know, one of the challenges that we see here is that, you know, most of this innovation is taking place in the private industry. And to the degree that there's an arm length um, space between private industry and the regulators that, that are responsible for regulating them, 
the regulators don't have an opportunity to learn about that that technology. They don't have an opportunity to learn about uh, how to regulate that te technology or how to take that technology and integrate it into their own regulatory processes. So, uh, you know, when you ask, you know, who is the primary audience, uh, this is an ecosystem problem, mm -hmm. right? You know, and that's why we need an organization like AIR. There's no one stakeholder in the ecosystem that can solve this problem. We need a catalyst that can bring the stakeholders together. And one of the things that we've learned uh, in the last two years is that having projects that bring these different participants to the same problem solving table is mm -hmm. a really powerful mechanism to demonstrate collaborative problem solving and to actually drive the kinds of uh, ecosystem level solutions that we need to drive towards. And so uh, the tools that we've started to implement that really help do this are things like text friends, uh, and an accelerator, uh, encouraging open source solutions where, where we can bring together the different uh, players from all the different stakeholders um, in their capacities and help jointly solve these problems because that's the only way we're going to get it done. There's no single stakeholder that can that can declare the solution here. Right. And so I would add that the COVID situation, our timing was fortunate with the manifesto because we were finishing it up last spring. We kind of put it aside at the start of COVID and we released it in July. And it was right at the time that the financial regulatory system was realizing that the economy was falling off a cliff, all small businesses were failing by the you know, huge numbers. And the regulators are blind most of the time to the nuance of what is going on in the regulatory system. It's not their fault. But our regulators are still relying on sampling to find out, to understand something like a big portfolio of loans, for example, uh, and reports that are coming in periodically. The main banking report is called the call report, and it is quarterly. And by the time the regulator looks at it, the information in it may be five months old. And, you know, you can't and it's and it's a little little fragment of the information that they would need to know about the system. These approaches are relics of the analog age when data was scarce and computing power was expensive. We don't need to do things that way anymore. We can get real time data, complete data sets. And the manifesto talks about the fact that, that, that going to that is loaded with challenges in terms of permissioning and protecting data and all of that. But the fact is regulators and risk managers in the industry need to be able to sit down at their computer or query a system and be able to look at robust information, analyze it with machine learning and other AI analytics, find out where the risks are emerging, take a close look at them with their scarce human experts, uh, but not trying to find the needles in, you know, these giant, giant uh, miles and miles of haystacks that they're doing now. And, and the, the technology exists to do this. We just have to figure out how to organize this very complicated human system uh, to be able to put it to good use. And, and we're very optimistic that this will happen if we guide it. Right. Yeah. I mean, the human system seems like a, 
the key word here in all of this. Cause I mean, listening to the two of you talk portions of it. I mean, you know, the word policy comes up, like if we were doing a word cloud or something like policy comes up a lot, you know, like regulation comes up a lot. I hear a lot of economic opportunity. I hear things like, you know, as you talk about this, I'm like, Oh, so you're saying there's multi-billion trillion dollar problems here that remain unsolved that policy will potentially have an impact on, but there's an entrepreneur out there somewhere that needs to come in and solve this. Absolutely. Right. Is there's a company in Kansas City called Triple Blind that's building the ability to run I'm gonna butcher it because I'm not that technical, but basically at a high level, it's like running encrypted algorithms on encrypted data sets. Right. And it's things like that that are that are gonna give us a chance to actually stitch together this data. Right. So to I don't I don't remember which one of you it was that said the arm's length relationship between the private and public, but I mean, Matt's a really good example of this where like, I almost wish I could go back to college, like get better grades than I did become a regulator and then go be an entrepreneur from there. Because it seems like if you live inside this system long enough, you, there's a lot of threads to pull as an entrepreneur. There's a lot to do, be it in, you know, one of the terms that I learned from the white paper, from the manifesto, not white paper manifesto was supervisory technology. Right. I've never, I mean, I've, I've thought of reg tech I've thought of, but that's, that seems like a multi-billion dollar, if not trillion dollar market that I don't hear a ton about very often. Yeah. And we should say regulators, we've, we've kind of touched on it, but regulators all over the world are rapidly moving to these techniques. I mentioned the call report in the United States, the FDIC has had a tech sprint running uh, last year on uh, modernizing the call report. We at AIR are working with the New York Department of Financial Services on a digital regulatory reporting project. The Financial Conduct Authority has a big project on uh, financial uh, digital regulatory reporting in the UK. I was a judge in the G20 tech sprint, and these are all tools for regulators themselves to use. So there's a mirror image of it in the industry for better compliance tools, but so-called supervisory tech or soup tech as you saw in the manifesto, we don't like the word soup tech, but it's, it's we, not as buzzy as reg tech. That's fair. It's it just kind of makes me want some Campbell's or some Panera or something, but I'm, I'm with you. But the, um, I, we, we're, we know we're, we're losing that battle, so we probably should stop fighting it. But, uh, but basically it's reg tech for regulators and, um, uh, regulators have, a, have an appetite for this. Uh, you just, I mean, we don't have time left in the show to talk about it, but, um, you know, spotting trends in securities markets that could be indicators of insider trading. You know, we can use big data to try to search for things like that, you know, just on and on and on. And the regulators are coming together. Mark Carney, when he was the governor of the Bank of England, said that if they had the human beings at the Bank of England reviewing all the data that was coming in today as data is exploding, uh, it would be the equivalent of reading the complete works of Shakespeare uh, every week, twice a week, all year. And, um, you know, it can't be done. So mm -mm. regulators, we find the regulators, some of them are motivated by the hope of doing things better. And some of them really are motivated by the fear that terrible things will happen if they really fall under that curve and they can't catch back up. 
And we feel that too. We've got to stay up with this technology. The regulators should have great tools. They should have great UX. They should have mm-hmm. should be able to sit down and say what, you know, I've been worried about such and such. How is it looking? And look at data across the whole system and across the whole world and pull it from the Internet of Things and, you know, all of it. Yeah. One of the most fascinating things that I that I learned, I think, from your show or from a conversation with you, I can't. I can't remember. It's weird. It's weird being friends with people that host podcasts, right? You can't remember where you heard it. Um, Specifically was that regulators in the United States, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but regulators in the United States can't test new technology without, and I'm going to butcher it, but like without a procurement process, without some sort of contractual, like you can't just sign up for a free trial of, of anything for seven days because there's, a lot that goes into governmental purchasing of things, yeah. right? So it's, it sounds like it's things like that, that we need to take a really serious look at. And one of my other favorite quotes in this whole thing is gradual, but urgent changes are necessary. Yeah. And this feels like one of those things that's, you know, becoming more urgent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one of the, the big benefits of, um, you know, the COVID crisis uh, is that it really has illustrated to uh, government officials and to the regulators um, that the technology infrastructure is behind, right? When we actually saw how difficult it was to stand up the PPP program, how difficult it was for, you know, citizens to actually onboard and enroll for unemployment. You know, when you see, um, you know, governors of states standing up and calling publicly for people who can code in COBOL, <laughs> you know, oh, this is God. extraordinary, but, but, but it's been an enormous wake up call. People understand that there's a need for a new digital infrastructure in a way that they didn't understand uh, just 12 months ago, January of 2020. Um, you know, many regulators have said to us, you know, if they had read the RegTech Manifesto in January, it would have been completely different than reading the RegTech Manifesto in July. Yeah, we briefed one agency and, uh, and uh, after the briefing, we said, uh, do we sound like we're crazy? One of the <laughs> said, if I read this in January, I would have said you're crazy. But today, we, you know, it's genius. So that was good timing. I, on your point about the procurement problems, we if there are any policymakers listening to the show, and I'm sure there are, we have a whole paper on our website that was done pro bono for us by the Buckley Law Firm on the legal and protocol uh, barriers to the regulators themselves in the U.S. federal government being able to, to innovate. And there is a lot of them. You know, every agency has an innovation uh, initiative now, and many of them are just paralyzed by the difficulty of just doing things that seem like common sense. Uh, if you want to try to try something new, yeah. I mean, to your point, who has the hardest job here? If you're, you know, if you're trying to run a race or even walk down the street and you're handcuffed and your feet are tied, it's exactly it's a little tough. Yeah, I have a couple more questions. Um, Specifically, that kind of beckon back to beckon back to what is the best way to phrase this? The utility of a human life, which is a lot to pull apart. Yeah, David's eyes just got big that nobody can see as they're listening, but everyone's like, uh oh, what's he gonna ask next? So, I've told this story 
personally to the two of you, and I think listeners have heard it before, but I started my career in retirement, right? We started my career at a robo-advisor. Used to think that the average American putting away money into their 401k was, you know, the largest problem in the history of financial institutions. There is nothing more important and thou shalt buy the index, right? That was what I thought back then. And then I moved into banking and I thought that savings was like, if you don't have an emergency savings account, you know, what's, what's going on. And then I realized like, what, why did I think retirement was an issue? Like most people don't have $400 in their savings account. Right. And then you keep moving down this chain and you realize that, well, actually the reason they don't have savings is because of debt. And a lot of the reason that people end up in debt is occasionally, you know, just people are people and don't make great decisions, but we're also in a system speaking of Kansas city, speaking of payday lending, that is a bit of a cycle. Right. If you make the wrong decision at the wrong point, one policymaker 50 years ago could have done a thing that puts you in a hole that you really can't dig out of. And all you thought you were doing was getting a short term loan. Right. It's, it's a very, very slippery slope, which leads me to the actual question, which is on top of, you know, who should be reading the RegTech manifesto, who should be getting in to the world of regulation, at what point should they be getting into it? I mean, I was only half kidding earlier about, I wish I would have gone and worked at a regulatory institution out of college. Um, But how important do you think it is to see the inner workings of these things versus reading about them or just like listening? Like how, how different was it? How different is it for you, Joanne, I guess, to have worked inside of it with the lens that you have now as an entrepreneur and, you know, a reg tech advocate versus like having just kind of, you lived in Washington once or something like how important is that experience? That's a great question, Zach. I think it does add enormously. When I was very young, I was, when I I was deputy controller of the currency, when I was young, I was the first woman in the job. So that tells you how long ago it was. And um, my mentor, one of my mentors along the way was the controller long ago, John Hyman. Um, And one of the things he used to advise his, uh, team uh, to do was to try to have a life that included both public and private sector. Mm. You you learn different things in the two places. And the more you understand the other one, the better you can do. And um, I've certainly done that with my life. And I, I counsel people to do it too. I remember being at one large company where I had a a young man who had had an opportunity to go to one of the regulatory agencies and came to me for advice. And I said, go for it. You know, you're going to understand the world differently if you do that. And the other thing is that you do, as you, you alluded to it earlier, Zach, you get to appreciate the people, their point of view, their fallibility, but also their talent. These organizations have really strong, proud cultures. All of them do. Uh, I am a product of the OCC. I said this in the manifesto. The manifesto is written in the, by me in the first person and an effort to make it more readable than a lot of white papers would be. And um, I tell the story in it of learning at the OCC about the culture of bank supervisors and their passion for keeping the banking system safe and sound and the collected wisdom that they have. You know, those senior bank examiners deeply understand risk. I mean, they just, they are always watching 
or the thing that's going to go wrong and potentially, you know, knock down a house of cards in a financial system. Mm-hmm. Um, so by being on the inside of organization, and then the other thing is it demystifies them. Um, my daughter has worked for the Senate and, um, I remember saying to her, you know, things that you don't even know, you know, but for somebody who's never done that, it seems so uh, arcane and intimidating. And, you you know, you understand that it's just people doing the best they can. Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm an advocate for it. Uh, it. It really does help. I would add that it's, you know, especially in this area, this era where there's so much cynicism around government, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm relatively new to uh, the, the processes that take place in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, it's probably been an area of focus for me for only the last, you know, five to seven years of my career. Um, but uh, I think that. Um, that that the thing that impresses me the most is the level of commitment and the level of um, personal uh, pride that um, the people that we have working in our government institutions, it, it is really remarkable the level of commitment that they have to their mission, to their goals. Um, you know, people are very personally aligned to uh, the jobs and the outcomes you know, the, the, the vision that we've created for fair finance. And that's really inspiring to me. It really gives me hope. You know, we're going through a tough period right now, but you know, uh, we have armies of people who uh, are maybe armies is the wrong word. (laughs) You know, we have, you know, there, there really are like just tremendous people who are incredibly committed and interested and doing the right thing uh, inside of our regulatory agencies. And, you know, we all benefit from this. All right. I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm really glad we talked. You've given me some hope that honestly I haven't had for a week or two or whatever, however long we want to count all of this a year. There is hope, right? I mean, it's a, it's a gradual but urgent change that's happening. It's a hard time to be alive, but every time that I've talked to a regulator, every time I've talked to somebody with the exception of, you know, not that I've talked to some of our Missouri senators that shall remain guilty. Um, but every time I've talked to a government official over the last, you know, month or so, it's not like they're slacking off. They're working harder than ever. Right. And they're, they're really, there's a reason that America is America. And now I'm going to get like a little nationalistic here in the true sense of the word, not the recent sense of the word, but this is a beautiful country that we live in with an unbelievable amount of opportunity. And I respect the idea and I love the idea of the public and the private coming together. And the fact that David, I mean, your background, I mean, I would consider you, you know, a successful wall street executive, you know, and that's not something, what you just said is not something that the average American thinks a successful wall street executive would say, you know, and that, that gives me hope to (laughs) think of that. Your, if your perspective is there, my perspective is similar and I feel good about it. And I really hope that people do dig into this manifesto because 
I will admit that I have not gone through all 110 pages, but I've probably gotten through about 75 and I've skimmed the other, you know, group of them since I can't do math that fast in my head. And it is important and I've learned a ton and I know I've got more to learn. And I think it's a read and reread. And I'm not smart enough even to comment. Like I have, I have no comments at this point. You know, I just have questions. Right. And that's, I hope, I hope folks will dig in that are smarter than me that are listening to this and we'll comment or we'll have questions and we'll really take the time to dig. So with that said, um, any other plugs that the, the two of you want to do? I know you're both kind of active in the interwebs. If you want to give folks a way to get a hold of you or doing, you know, another little, Hey, remember air kind of thing. Feel free to do a little commercial here at the end if you'd like. Yeah, one thing I'll say is another group of people I hope will read the manifesto are the staffers on Capitol Hill. Again, I've been one of those too, and they're so busy. But um, I think for many of them, what's laid out in the manifesto, the manifesto has lots of, you know, lots of weaknesses, but uh, I don't think anyone has ever produced a paper like this. Uh, it puts together realms of knowledge and thought that are not mm-hmm. usually connected. And when you put them together, you suddenly can get that different vision for how things could be better for everyone. If you think about the changes we're talking about here, these are win-wins. Not to say there wouldn't be some business models disrupted and whatever, but basically you're talking about better outcomes for people through better regulation and better financial products at a lower cost. I mean, what's not to love in that if we can just get there? Um, in term, so in terms of us, our website is um, www.regulationinnovation.org. We have a lot of material there and we have a lot of exciting things coming up. And one of them is we are putting together with the UK Financial Conduct Authority and others a tech sprint on how women, women's financial economic uh, empowerment has been impacted Hmm. by COVID. And um, it's going to be very interested. It's going to be mostly women. If we've got women coders listening, call us up. We want to get you involved. Uh, We're aiming for like 75% women at all levels of this because most of the tech sprints in the past are 25% women. So that's going to be coming up in late March. We're really excited about that. I'll also say that we at AIR this year are putting a lot more emphasis on uh, emerging markets and um, very interested in networking with emerging market regulators and central banks on what they're seeing in terms of fair finance, consumer protection, financial inclusion, and regulatory tools for advancing those. So I could go on, but those are a few highlights. David? David. Yeah, super exciting. Um, I think that um, what's really exciting for us at AIR is that, um, you know, in this uh, frame of, of hope is that we're really seeing that we are able to impact the system. You know, um, two years ago, uh, when we did the first regulatory tech sprint, you know, which is essentially a hackathon, um, uh, you know, none of the U.S. regulators were prepared to actually produce a hackathon, produce a tech sprint on their own. And uh, we partnered with the FCA to produce a tech sprint that uh, was on um, 
uh, AML, any money laundering and uh, its impact on crime, like uh, human trafficking. And um, the uh, output was just a phenomenally successful. We had over 150 observers come to that tech sprint representing 16 different regulatory agencies in Washington, D.C. And um, uh, it was a turning point. It was a real turning point in terms of how the regulatory community uh, embraced technology and, and embraced uh, tech sprints as an innovation tool. Uh, we have been providing technical assistance since then to six different regulatory agencies and four of them have announced publicly uh, regulatory tech sprint strategies. Uh, so uh, there is hope. There is hope. Change is happening, and it's happening at a pace that is uh, really remarkably fast for government and for um, you know very complex um, uh, infrastructures. So uh, I think that Joanne and I are really hopeful and really excited, and um, we we see that there is a role for everyone here. So uh, be hopeful and I get involved. It. I love it. And oh, go ahead, Joanne. Two last thoughts, really quickly. One is um, on these tech sprints. Something we didn't mention is that we held one in October exploring how to um, deal with the rise of cryptocurrency as a way to pay for online child sexual abuse material, they call CSAM. And that event brought together uh, FinCEN, law enforcement agencies from the US and Canada. We had involvement from the UK. Uh, members of Congress, uh, the superintendent of, of uh, financial services in New York State, ranging all the way from that to um, we had Ashton Kutcher, the actor, uh, speaking. He has founded a group called Thorn for child advocacy in this group. Wow. And just think about the power of being able to convene people across these silos and get them working together on a problem they cared about. And in the course of this, exercise over the course of a week, one of our teams actually found some uh, possible active crime underway, which we were able to refer to law enforcement right in the middle of the text. Wow. And yeah. I mean, really the power of this, you just bring that technology together with that regulatory problem, have people look at different kinds of information and amazing things can happen with it. So we are, incredibly optimistic despite the difficulties of the day. And I think the last thing I want to say is, I know people are angry. I'm angry at a lot of things right now. Um, but my hope is that we'll have less anger and rage and more uh, generosity of heart and forgiveness and um, grace mm. for each other. And Let's see if we can start to figure out, knowing that there are good people on both sides of these divides, let's figure out how to find each other and work together for a better world uh, in whatever realm we're working in. This is our, our fervent um, hope. I think that's a... Number one, I agree. Number two, one of my favorite quotes in life is, everyone's doing the best they can with the awareness they have, right? And we're all just putting one foot in front of the other. And one of the other things actually, and kind of another reason that I was happy that, you know, we're doing this now and not earlier 
I, uh, this is a, a random aside as we, we leave on a hopeful note, but I think some, I think some of what we're talking about here, the idea of, you know, an average American digging into a reg tech manifesto, the average fintech nerd digging in and really understanding a lot of this stuff. If you, if this, if our time together and listening to this, you know, podcast and this episode hasn't piqued your interest enough and you don't understand how this actually hits people's life to Joanne's point about this coming year being more of an emerging markets thing. My, uh, my little thing at night recently has been the show called trafficked, uh, that's on national geographic. I don't know if either of you have seen this, but Mariana Van Zeller is officially my favorite uh, investigative journalist in the history of the world. And she in the show called trafficked finds a new black market every week and follows the process kids in Colombia with, you know, 10 kilos of cocaine on their back. Cause that's the only thing that they can do to be able to pay for their family's next meal. Right. And like Republicans, Democrats in the U S aside, like if the takeaway from this conversation is some empathy in the world, I think that's a good thing. And also go watch traffic. If none of this made any sense to you, because these are real problems that are impacting real people. And if we do go digital first, if we do the things that we're talking about here, and now I feel like I'm like lecturing the two of you that know way more about this than, than I do. The world is such a better place and the economic empowerment of the average human, not even just the average American is so much stronger. So anyways, I'm with you. I'm hopeful. And these are really, really important problems that I'm glad that I get to focus on every day and get to talk to the two of you about. And I appreciate the work that the two of you do. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Joanne Barefoot and David Eric from the Alliance for Innovative Regulation. Thank you for bearing with me, especially through the end of that conversation. We ended up losing some of the audio towards the end. So if you're curious why it went from monologuing to the outro music, it's because we lost some of the last pieces there. But you got to hear the most important pieces. You got to hear the the meat of the conversation. And I really hope that like I did, you learned something from it. And I also hope that you really have a hopeful perspective about the coming years. I left a link to everything we cover in the show notes, Joanne's work with Harvard, etc., and the RegTech Manifesto itself. I really hope you take the time to comment, conversate, and dig into that deeply. It deserves it, and our economy, our future, our democracy depends on these conversations. So with that, until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and I'm keeping this one the same as last week. Keep faith in democracy, y'all. We can do this.